certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? WA gripped by fear. All members of Western Australia have got a responsibility because these are our daughters and sisters. Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. This is a murder mystery that's gripped the community for decades. Today, the trial of the century got underway. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Welcome to this daily podcast, Claremont in Conversation. Tonight, I'm joined by criminal lawyer Damien Cripps. Welcome, Damien. Thanks for having me on board. And barrister Nick Van Hattam. Good to be here, Natalie. Thanks to you both for coming in. We've also got with us the West Australian newspaper's legal affairs editor, Tim Clark. And Tim, I think we're going to kick off with you. You've been in court all day. Can you describe just what it was like there? Uh, yeah, it was a pretty extraordinary day, Nat, to be honest, um, just from, from very early doors. The queues outside the court, the police presence, the media presence, the legal presence, and just the, I mean, the, the, the occasion of it all, I suppose, which is a horrible thing to say, given that we're talking about um, such serious subject matter. But, I mean, everyone's been sort of building up to the day, particularly in the courtroom, sort of um, getting ready for it, preparing for the influx of, of, of people and interest. Um, and they were um, they were right to be prepared because it was, certainly was a very busy day. Um, but once once things got underway in court, it was quite a solemn day as well. So, um, so yeah, it sort of lived up to the hype, I suppose, in, in yeah. one way. And and I think the judge at one point, didn't he have to remind people, you know, this is a serious matter, this is not a social occasion? Is that something that would be quite unusual for a case like this? It is, well, un- it yeah, is sorry, unusual. Sorry. sorry. It is unusual for a judge to have to say that. Normally it goes without saying. Normally also, although the courts are always conducted in public, usually there's very few people in the public gallery. Um, so it is an additional distraction for what is already a very difficult task. Tim, it's Damien. Just, yeah. I was just going to ask you, it was, it was interesting from uh, perhaps um, Nick and my perspective. Mm. Um, when you were down there today and, and it was busy, there was a lot of people there, could you give us some insight into why you think people were there, apart from the, the, the people immediately affected or immediately associated with the case? Did you get a feel for whether there was um, people there just by chance or just turning up for any other reason? No, I mean, I, I got the... Pr- sense Damien from uh, from very early in you know in the proceedings but then getting closer and closer to the trial that the the phrase cultural significance was used this morning and I think that was really apt because it's such uh, everyone I speak to when they find out what I do for a living that's the first thing they ask me even if they've never met me before I, I are you doing Claremont and it's one of those things that's like uh, you know, like a, 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 a silver line through the state. I mean, everyone somehow feels connected or feels close to the case. And I got the impression that those were, that were there this morning in court wanted to be physically close to the case. I mean, I, I, I think there might have been a bit of prurience. They want yeah. to see what Mr. Edwards looks like in the flesh. Um, and... Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the publicity, as, as you boys would probably agree, has been unprecedented leading up to it. Um, and so I think that sort of builds a, a bit of um, 
a bit of presence as well. And I guess so many of those people who came along, you know, there is a fascination with the people involved and those people maybe want to see the accused man and see him in the flesh and and see what his reactions and responses are like. Can you just mm. tell us a little bit about um, Bradley Edwards' demeanour today? Well, as calm and as cool and as collected as he has been for the past three years. I mean, that's what's struck me over the whole process is, is how sort of unemotional he appears, given the, 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 the accusations against him. Oh, I don't know, um, Damien and Nick might be able to, yeah. to, to butt in or, or sort of comment on this. I mean, would that be an instruction or, or something that he's, that he's learned to do? I mean, you guys deal with sort of a criminal accused quite a bit. I mean, what, what would be the, what would, what would build-up there, the preparation there? My observation would really be that very little can be determined from that. It needs to be remembered it's been going for a long time. So while the public is now going to hear things perhaps for the first time, it's been known to his team for a long time. It's mm. something that is a very stressful and um, terrible ordeal for everyone involved. Um, so I, my, my, my real observation would be that it's very difficult to, to be able to interpret much from, from what we're seeing because every person that's involved in this is in an unreal situation. Um, <laughs> And would he have been briefed by lawyers as to how he be should behave in court or not? It's a possibility. I mean, there's certainly a, a, a case um, that in certain circumstances, um, well, it starts right from the start when, when they're being questioned by the police. If you contact a, a lawyer, the first thing that we're likely to tell you is no comment. Right. Um, and and I, I, I don't know whether you would um, class that as um, coaching them or counselling or whatever you would think that is, but I, one of the things I was going to say off the, the back of what um, Nick had said was that it's it's exhausting. It would be, for an accused person, it would be exhausting, emotionally drained to get, um, from what I can understand, uh, from February of 2016 or December 2016, and of course this is not dismissing the, 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 the victims' families. Yep. But in, in relation to what Tim had said about how the accused man might have appeared today, um, we, it might be the case we're simply just getting the shell of a man that's, that, that, who's left. There's a, a story that comes to mind from Over East. I think it was Rebel Wilson's lawyer in the defamation proceedings, and you might have heard this, um, had said to Rebel, we've got to be quite sombre as we're walking in and out of court because the cameras will be there for us and we don't want to give the impression that we're taking this lightly. Um, so he sort of said, please don't crack any jokes. And she said, I'm definitely going to crack a joke. And of course, as, wow. they, as they stepped out of court, she cracked the joke, he broke his character and smiled. And that's the photo and that's there in right. the newspapers. Um, so it is the case that sometimes barristers are saying... Um, we don't want to distract from the story. Yes. The story is the evidence. Um, so uh, there are examples in other cases where um, people are trying to avoid creating the wrong impression. And you mentioned before that, um, you know, they've been preparing for this for a long time and therefore a lot of the information that is being spoken about uh, he would have already heard. What about the families today? Some of the information that came out today, would would they have heard all of these things before as well? Or would some of this information have been a surprise to them? There's no uh, need for the state to disclose to the victims and victims' families. Um, so it, I think there's every prospect that there will be some information that the, those families have not heard before. 
Okay, so well, let's have a uh, talk about some of that information. Um, Tim, you know, I mean, obviously the trial opened with a bombshell and, and that recording of Sarah Spears. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was a real moment. Um, I don't think anyone in the court, certainly in the media, saw that coming. As you say, I, I, would, I would hope or maybe expect Don and Carol Spears um, would have been warned that might be that might be being played because it would be a, a shock. It was a shock to everyone. Um, it was a it was the phone call that Sarah made on the night she disappeared to um, to call a taxi. Um, so you know it's you know twenty odd years ago, and it's amazing that it even exists and can be can be sort of enhanced enough to yeah. be played in court. But it was, and we heard her ordering the taxi. We heard her telling the taxi operator where she wanted to go, which was which was Mosman Park. Um, and, of course, we know that although she might have got to Mosman Park, uh, amongst the allegations are that, that, that prosecutors think she might have done, she didn't get there in the taxi. Um, they allege that um, she got there in Mr Edwards's car. In terms of finding this information after 20 years, how difficult would that have been? Well, I would have thought, as Tim had pointed out then, um, Natalie, that they would have, this recording um, would have existed for the duration. They would have known about this. But I wanted to ask Nick a question about that um, because it, because it's interesting. Nick, what, why do you, if, if you were running the prosecution case, I understand you're not, why might you have played that? A couple of thoughts. The first, to address Natalie's question as well, uh, there's a huge amount of effort that's gone into the preparation on both sides, of course, and both uh, everyone involved in this is uh, doing their best to fulfil all their duties, and that includes obtaining all relevant information and presenting it fairly. So to, to come to your question, Damien, I think it is about um, the fair presentation. It makes sense for the chronology um, to identify that information and to remind everyone um, particularly the court, of the, the place and time of the allegation. Um, so it, it, that, in my view, isn't completely... It's not unusual. Um, there may have been some discussion about that. It may not be an issue that it is a true recording, for example. If there was some issue about its authenticity, it wouldn't. I think it would not have been played in the opening. Um, but it is a way to contextualise and conceptualise the issues. Uh, absolutely. Tim, could I ask you, as you were there, um, mm. w what impact did that have, having that played? Because my view might be a little different to Nick's yeah. on why that um, was played in court. And, and I'll be brief and just say that um, I would have thought that this kind of content um, could have an emotional impact on people. But mm. we re remember, obviously, Nick, that it's a judge-alone trial, so yeah. the emotional impact is, is limited in what effect it can have. But could you tell us, Tim, as you were there, what impact did that have when it was yeah, played? Yeah, it well, it was, a, it was a pretty tense day anyway, leading up. You know, as I say, we're all sat in court for an hour waiting. He comes in. There's a bit of um, sort of... Uh, rigmarole to, you know, a few, a few sort of preliminary matters to get out of the way. And then Justice Hall gave his little speech. And then it's like, over to you, Ms. Ms. Barla Gallo. And she started with some rhetorical flourishes. You guys probably know she's, she's, um, she's very good at that. And then she started this sort of PowerPoint presentation. And within two minutes, we heard this recording. And it was like, wow. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it is, everyone knows the name Sarah Spears, but probably no one's ever heard her talk apart from her friends and family back in the day and that's right and, and, there, and there there her voice was in in the most sort of um you know oblique and sort of stark setting and knowing what you know 
of, of what happened, although we know we don't know all of it. We certainly know that she's uh, she's missing and she's never been her body's never been recovered. Um, it's 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 always very strange to hear you know a, a voice from so long ago. Um, uh, for, um, for, um, that's ha- something terrible has has happened to them, um, and then sort of, uh, I mean, going back to your original point, there, there can be no doubt that she was alive at, at that exact point yeah. um, because I don't think there's any dispute that it's her. Um, and so, as the boys said, the timeline, the chronology, I think is going to be quite important because the Spears case out of the three is obviously. Um, the, the most circumstantial because there's no physical evidence, i.e. the body. And so it's very important for the prosecution to make this timeline because they later went on to say that in Mosman Park there were four um, separate accounts of hearing a woman scream at a certain point, um, which is they, they will say that was the point that the attack occurred. And obviously, so they can put that timeline in place quite solidly with that physical evidence. Obviously, there's the emotional impact of it, but there's also the the evidentiary impact of it. And that was echoed a little bit later when we saw pictures of Jane Rimmer that have never been seen publicly before, as far as I know, in the in the Continental Hotel, um, leaving and smiling and dancing. And um, so, yeah, there was a real sort of physical. Um, element to the, the case today that you don't normally get in openings. Yeah. I would would say it's usually a lot of words and a bit of rhetorical flourish, but you don't usually get a physical video representation of of, of some of the facts that are being presented. So yeah, I mean it had a big impact, definitely. And you can only imagine uh, for the families who were sitting in court and watching that or hearing that, you can't really comprehend how they'd be feeling. What was their reaction to these things? Um, well, certainly. I mean, one of the most poignant moments of the day for me was when they were showing the pictures of, of Jane on the screen. Directly below the screen was her mum, Jenny, sat in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, there's screens all over the court, but, I mean, just that juxtaposition was, was you know, it, it, it struck me. Um, and I certainly did notice that um, when they got to Kira's um, um, sort of the outline of what, what they say happened to Kira, um, they also showed a picture of Kira inside the, the Conti as well. And um, Denise, her sister, and Dennis, her dad, um, they were both obviously quite moved and upset by seeing that image on the screen, as you as you could absolutely well imagine. So, as I said, as much as it was a sombre occasion, there were certainly um, uh, little pockets of emotion that just gave you the tiniest glimpse of, of what, what um, the, the families of the three victims must have gone through for the last 20 years and probably going to have to endure for, for, the, for the months to come as well. Just for uh, the, the prosecutors and defence and the judge himself, they obviously would see this or the judge would see the reactions of the families. What kind of an impact does that have or does it have no impact? I, I would hope that it would have um, no impact legally Mm. Um, but I would expect but and anticipate human, right? that, 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 um, that his honour is human beyond that and he would certainly... Um, but his skill set to compartmentalise 
the effect of that, I have no doubt about. I think that mm. his ability to actually appreciate that's what's happening. But my job here, my role here, is to deal yeah. with the legal issues. He's second to none. I completely agree with Damien that legally it doesn't have an impact, but as humans it does. Yeah. There's been an interesting development over the last week where Chief Magistrate Heath has announced that the Magistrates Court will recognise that and provide more essentially mental health days for magistrates. Yeah. That the toll that they have in making these decisions again and again, being exposed to traumatic subject matter, is taking a toll. And in order for these officers of the court to continue to do their job um, to the high standards that the community requires, um, we need to remember the human in the situation. And he um, reiterated today, didn't he, that it's really important that everyone know that Bradley Edwards is presumed innocent? Mm. Yeah, he made that point very clear. He's made it very clear all the way along. Um, and uh, that was the main part of his speech, really, is, is, is just, you know, this is the process. He's innocent. He's got nothing to prove. Um, and we're, we're all here to hear the evidence that the prosecution put forward. And it's, and it's, it's all down to them, basically. Tim, in terms of some of the detail that came out in court today, mm. um, we obviously heard, you know, the timeline of Jane Rimmer's night in Claremont, and then we also heard about when her body was found. And we should probably warn people that there was some um, graphic details in that in court today. Yeah, I mean, it, sorry, it, it, it was graphic. Um, and there's obviously reasons for investigators not to let that detail out into the public at the time or even as the investigation goes on and on, in, in, as in this case, because, I mean, that's, you know, that's their trump card. They don't know or they, want, they don't want people knowing that who might, um, you know, use it for or against them. They don't basically don't want the killer um, to know that they know um, and they don't want to give you know, people the opportunities to make false confessions, or whatever you would, I don't know, but, but, but that's the way it is. Um, so today, when they've got a man in the dock saying, we, we think you did it, I mean, that was the real, the, the first real opportunity they, they, they had and the first real need that they had to let those um, details out in public, and that they did. Um, and as um, the former police commissioner, Carlo Callahan said last week, they, would, they were shocking and they are shocking. Um, some of the wounds were very large, um, very jagged um, on the neck and on the head of, of both girls. Um, Jane in particular, whose body was left um, in the bush for, you know, more than more than five weeks, six weeks. Um, uh, there were um, uh, different um, parts of the body that had defensive wounds on them that we learned for the first time on, on the arms of both girls. So that would obviously lead you to think that they both really, really fought, um, which is, once again, I mean, the, 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 just the human element of, of the whole thing. I mean, you can just imagine what they must have been thinking um, in those moments and what their mums um, and dads and sisters and loved ones must have been thinking today when they when they heard it. Um, but there is a reason for that. I mean, they, 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 I mean, they have to show a cause of death. They have to show um, similarities, if they can, between the two bodies, which they, I, I think Carmel tried to do today. So yeah, I mean, it was it, it's it's those moments that that um, you, you've, everyone in court, you've, I mean, you've really just got to take a deep breath and 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 um, and, and get through it <laughs> in terms of listening to it. So mm. Lord knows what it must have been like for the investigators to have to do um, to do all that work, you know, post-mortem details, all that type of thing. Um, it's not pretty, um, and it was, it was um, murder trials, and particularly violent murder trials, never are. 
Yeah, de- very difficult for everyone in there. Mm, absolutely. This um, case is conversational in the legal industry as well. Mm. And one of the, the interesting things about what Tim was just saying, in my mind, is is extremely important in, in the, the impact that this... The impact that these these cases, these three cases, I know they arise as one, but the three incidents of these um, these girls has had on everyone has been significant. Um, and if I I'll go out on a limb and say, one of the things that comes to my mind is that this man is innocent until he's proven guilty. In my mind, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And he sits in that box having these allegations put to him. And he's innocent until he's proven guilty. So I'm working on the premise that at this point in time he's innocent. And if he is innocent, the impact that this would be having on him would Mm. be significant too. And I'm not certainly not saying that people should have sympathy uh, beyond whatever. But exactly as Tim's just described then, all the people that have worked on the investigation... Mm -hmm. Um, the the justice hearing the case, the prosecutors and the the defendants, everybody involved, this would be having a significant impact on um, from from start to finish. Um, And just to hear the way that Tim has described some of those things um, is difficult even as someone that works in the industry to to stomach and fathom just in a, a, a broadcasting environment. Yeah. Another observation is that the presumption of innocence is the most important rule in the law. It's been referred to today, it's been reiterated today, it will be reiterated throughout the proceedings. And it's the most important rule for important reasons. It's only in a trial that evidence is tested. Up until that point, different people are working on different parts of the case and collecting information. But it's only at a trial where it's all presented together, fairly, in a painstaking process to determine the questions before the court. Uh, And I say that particularly based on some of my experience where you look at the disclosure and you look at the documents and you think the outcome of this case is obvious. But once you actually engage in the process and test the evidence, some of those statements written in some of those paragraphs come to have less weight. Um, So these rules and these processes are very important and they're there for important reasons. Yeah, and that's why it's going to be a big day tomorrow because it'll be really Mr Jovic's first chance to really stand up and, and... and you know, put his put his flag on the hill. Um, you know, and to state some of the actual, you know, proper lines of defence. I mean, so far he's we've had him objecting to little bits of evidence and 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 you know in pre-trial hearings, but it's mostly been led by the prosecution. So tomorrow afternoon, if we anticipate it, will be um, really important because that's where he gets to you know, literally state his case for the first time. And, um, and uh, I mean, Mr Edwards' um, innocence um, is, will be sort of fully explained. Well, I think we all look forward to the defence arguments tomorrow. Thank you all for joining us for day one of the trial. Uh, just a reminder to those of you listening that these views are personal opinion of those people taking part. Um, We obviously know there is still a long way to go, but at least we are one step closer to finding answers to this crime that has haunted West Australians for decades. Um, We'll be back with you tomorrow for day two. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiorlo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of 7 West Media. 
Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au.